Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and on this show, we discuss life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Dr. Tobin Hart back again. Dr. Hart is a father, partner, author, and spiritual ally. Professionally, he is a professor in a most unusual psychology department at the University of West Georgia. This department is a radical place where knowledge, wisdom, and even love are on the menu as we explore the depth of consciousness and society. He is also the co-founder and chair of the Child Spirit Institute, a non-for-profit educational and research hub dedicated to understanding and nurturing the spirituality of children and adults. And today, Dr. Hart is back with us on the show to talk about just this topic, spirituality and children. So welcome back. Thank you, Amy. So we're going to jump into this concept of children and spirituality. And you've had a long interest in this, starting with your own child. So can you talk about what sort of opened you up to children and spirituality? I always liked both of those things, but I never put them together until one night when my then uh, about six-year-old was going to bed and I was tucking her in and she, um, she a, a party girl who always wanted to stay up a little bit later, um, asked me a question about the, the book that was under my arm. It was a developmental psychology textbook with a picture of a child on it. And she said, Dad, what are you reading a kid's book for? And I said, <laughs> it's not a kid's book. It's a book about children, things like what they like to do, how they think, this kind of thing. And without missing a beat, lying in her bed uh, at bedtime, she said, um, you mean like seeing angels? And, of course, this was the last thing that this or any developmental psychology textbook was about. But I said, <laughs> sure, it could be about things like that. And she said, uh, well, I see my angel. And I said, you do? And it's funny, she had mentioned this kind of thing a couple times over the previous six months, and I hadn't taken the bait. I thought, again, this was a girl who wanted to stay up a little later, and, and I thought, oh, great, a, child, you know, a child's fantasy. But this night, as a good psychologist and researcher, I took the bait. I said, do you see her now? And she said, just a minute. And she lied back on her bed, surrounded by this forest of stuffed animals. And she started to take in these deep rhythmic breaths with her eyes closed and started to move her spine from side to side as if trying to get it in the right spot. Now, mind you, at that time, she had not seen anybody do yoga or meditate that I know of. We didn't talk about angels in our household. This wasn't the kind of thing that was regular fodder for us as a family. Uh, I had no idea what she was doing. Clearly, she knew exactly what she was doing. About maybe three or four minutes later, and she said, still eyes closed, dreamy voice, lying on the bed. She said, okay, I can see her now. Hmm. And I said, okay, um, what's she look like? <laughs> and I'm standing up still with this book under my arm. And she said, uh, well, it looks like she's got glowy lipstick and makeup on but she doesn't, it's just her. Hmm. And I said, um, can I talk to your angel? And again, I thought, great, you know, kids fantasy, this is terrific. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, again, eyes closed, 
why? And I said, well, I'm interested in things like this. And she paused for a moment as if checking out an answer. And she said, my angel knows your angel. They're old friends. Oh. And in that moment, um, tears came to my eyes. Mm -hmm. My heart started to swell. And I really didn't know what was going on. But, you know, the body registers things before the mind does. And so my body knew something special was going on. So at this point, I sat down on the bed, a sit, sitting up straight, mind you, because there was something about this that <laughs> really called me to be at attention. And so we proceeded to have this conversation, Haley and I guess her angel and I, for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And she spoke with a kind of profundity that I don't hear from the wisest adults I know, much less from a six-and-a-half-year-old. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the kind of profundity that... Uh, you know, it was complex. Uh, it, was, it was sort of cutting to the heart of things. Uh, for example, Aquinas uh, says that wisdom is seeing into the heart of something or seeing, into, uh, seeing from a greater height. And her comments were like that. They were really uh, remarkably on target. And anyway, so uh, at one point she started giving me advice about something I was working on. And this was not something she knew about and <laughs> hardly I had admitted it. And, and uh, uh, again, it was just this remarkable sort of uh, event. Uh, uh, we went on for a few more minutes and finally at the end, I didn't want her to go to sleep, but it looked like it was time. And she then, uh, I, I said, uh, is there anything else your angel would like to say to me? Paused again still eyes closed, and she said, children talk to their angels. I gave her a bigger hug and kiss and uh, left the room and got a pad of paper and took this down uh, as verbatim as I could. And this led to uh, the strangest sort of research project that I've had, and it's gone on now in some ways for more than 20 years, but um, it was uh, you know following these threads of of conversation and stories and what was most remarkable is things people began to pop out of the pavement uh you know somebody mm. would say i don't know why i'm telling you this but i need to t on an airplane I, I i don't know why i need to tell you this but i want to tell you about this thing with my children or this thing that happened to me as a child my mm. wife started to tell me something that happened to her at four or five uh, we got a call and you know, within 24 hours, happened to be visiting this place where an 11-year-old girl, and anyway, it was this remarkable sort of ride to try to um, understand this. And when talking to this 11-year-old girl a few days after this with my daughter, um, I asked this girl, I said, well, what, what am I here talking to you about? She paused for a minute. She was very intuitive. And she said, you are to write a book about uh, a book for these children and for your children. And in fact, that's what we did within a couple of years mm -hmm. was to write this book about children's spiritual life. So anyway, so that's, <laughs> that's how things took a turn into uh, exploring this, what was pretty uncharted territory of children's spiritual world. And what did that? What does that spiritual world typically look like? Because as you were talking, one of the things I was thinking about was how we think about imaginary friends, and it kind of begs the question: What are they really? You know, are they imaginary friends, or are they perhaps there? We just don't see them. Yeah. So. 
I think children have a variety, potentially a variety of di- different children have different kinds of imaginary friends sometimes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, imaginary friends have gotten a new lease on life in the last dozen years or so. Uh, up until that point, they were often described, uh, dismissed, or often a telltale for a clinician as a child having a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fortunately, there's been some nice work that says, well, wait a minute. Um, this is a way for a child to have a dialogue about concerns that they have. And therefore, this is a really, uh, a really good ally. And it doesn't matter whether it's real or imagined. It's, it's a way for children to work out problems. And that's primarily what uh, many imaginary friends uh, serve the function of. Um, test it out, work it out, think it out kind of thing in this kind of dialogue. Um, on the other hand, there are these experiences, and I uh, count my daughters as one of them, and I've found many, many others, of this idea of seeing the invisible, you know, something that seems to be tapping or accessing another dimension. Um, and it ranges from ghosts to angels to entities to uh, whatever. And, uh, and I'm a pretty, you know, grounded and uh, straight guy, but boy, this is really help me to appreciate the multidimensional nature of reality. And that for many kids, and, and for example, I know many children with tremendously credible and verifiable cases of finding, um, let's call them ghosts, uh, people who have died, for example, um, and without the child's knowing, they were able to tune into this location they might have been in the next room or the, this building for the first time. And they can describe this, uh, this person. And yet the person has been deceased for 10 years or 100 years. And yet we can find the, the, you know, they wouldn't have any way of knowing that. And yet we can verify this based on what's going on. So there's so many things that uh, are working in this, this other world. And, and for some children, um, this is, you know, a tremendous gift and it can be overwhelming as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So what else, what are the phenomena that you see? You talk about this in your article, I imagine also in the book, um, about how kids express spirituality and what as parents we can be looking for to foster that because I think it's important to to foster that connection. I think it, obviously this is my bias, but it, it it broadens the way that you see the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, this idea of, you know, a dramatic encounter with an angel or a a scary one with a ghost or something is just one, one of many kinds of experiences. And, you know, uh, maybe the most important and most profound are moments of wonder. So a child and seeing the ocean for the first time or seeing an elephant up close or even a young child having a bite of ice cream for the first time, these are moments of absolute awe and wonder. And what we know from the literature on spirituality and on mysticism is that you, you really couldn't distinguish the accounts of a child, a child accounts, a child, a children's account of, <laughs> uh, of, un, of wonder or awe from that of a recognized saint or a mystic. The, the descriptions mm. are virtually identical in terms of, uh, you know, uh, content. And so children have moments of wonder and awe 
all the time and they are transformative and at least transcendent. That is, they show them a world of hope. They show them something greater than themselves. They show them something greater than the stock market and the business world, this kind of thing. And so uh, it's in many ways uh, part of the turn in the culture these days that we're noticing a re-enchantment of the world. We're, we're, we have things like deep ecology and uh, sensitivity to, to animals and, and to the natural world in a way that we didn't before. You know, Apollo uh, 11 astronaut Edgar Mitchell comes back as virtually every astronaut comes back from uh, being out of the, or, out of, uh, you know, the gravitational pull. And they say, wow, I see the Earth as this living being almost, or at least mm. this, this complete uh, thing. And therefore, we need to think a little differently. It's not just a collection of objects. You know, our goal should be, as Thomas Berry says, to see the world as a communion of subjects. And children have this particular uh, what Zen would call beginner's mind, mm-hmm. this ability to see things as if for the first time and appreciate them without pre, much preordained kind of uh, value that says, wow, that grasshopper is incredible. Did you see that kind of thing? And so long as we can keep wonder alive in that, then we keep spirituality alive. So that would be one thing. So mm-hmm. wonder. Another is wondering. And that is, um, you know, we normally think of children as not having the capacity to ask big questions. What are we here for? What's life about? What am I to do? What's the meaning of this? What's real? What's not real? These are the fundamental questions of all of religion and all of philosophy. And you can see these questions being asked in a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Why, 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 why? Right I know. Now? I have a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so there's and a it's, lot of questions I can't answer. <laughs> and, and so what it says is that children are natural philosophers. You know, these questions about how do you know that? I'm, one of my daughters used to say that, right? And so, uh, you know, that's epistemology. You know, and what's real? That's cosmology or ontology. You know, this kind of, these are the, all of the, all of the things that, uh, uh, that, that philosophy tries to go for is what children can do really naturally. And, and so to be able to give, as a parent, to be able to give space, you know, when a child asks a question like that, it's, saying, it's like saying, hey, sit with me at this table of the great thing and let's dive in together. Mm-hmm. You don't need tidy answers. In fact, that's often insulting. And children often describe retrospectively, they'll say, you know, nobody would take my question seriously. Mm. And it wasn't that I wanted an answer, even though I did. I wanted somebody to take it seriously. I want to have a conversation about it. I want to see ideas pop up about it because I've got my own, you know. So, mm-hmm. so that's what children are inviting us to in this wondering. So wonder and wondering are, are two. Another is what I call between you and me. And that is this empathic connection. This, uh, this neurological looping and linking that we know is very real uh, these days. And this is an ability um, to have what Martin Buber would call a relational spirituality. So rather than going up, let's say, or going down in this sort of uh, earth, earth-friendly uh, spirituality, this is what we might call extended spirituality or relational spirituality in which we're going out to another and making mm-hmm. uh, 
conversation and maybe even community and maybe even communion with the other. And it doesn't just have to be another person. It could be the natural world. It could be a pet. It could even be an idea in which we find this profound resonance with the other. And, uh, and this puts us in a, a kind of frequency lock, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm humming with you. I'm vibrating with you. I get it. And so that's a kind of extended spirituality, I would argue. So wondering, wonder, and uh, between you and me. Um, and then this other is like, this, like the angels. It would be this idea of seeing the invisible, whether it be ghosts or angels or... Um, or there was other. a book written about the kid who saw Jesus right a couple years ago, I think. Yes, him. and, I, and um, I, I think there's some, some questions about that book, that particular book you're referring to. But uh, yeah, you know, Eben Alexander, uh, uh, a, a, a neurosurgeon from... Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on uh, the show a while oh, back. Oh, great. Yeah, from yeah. Atlanta. He's, he's yeah. like my neighbor down the road here, right? He had... Uh, he had his own angel experience. Uh-huh. So, so there's so many uh, sort of credible accounts of this. And, and also um, Ian Stevenson, a, a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia Medical School, did these uh, very dull but very wonderful books on what he called, uh, one of them is called uh, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Hmm. And they're about children apparently describing things that they couldn't have any knowledge of and that he counts them as uh, possible past lives. Mm-hmm. There may be other ways to make sense of it. For example, one could tune into a particular frequency of uh, being, you know, and not have to have actually lived that past life. But anyway, it, it, it makes a really credible case for uh, knowing something that you have no other way of knowing, you know. So, so seeing the invisible. So, and the last one is what I would call uh, wisdom, that, uh, Black Elk, the great uh, Lakota Sioux Native American elder who, who uh, led his people through um, the genocide of, uh, uh, in the States. Of, uh, he says, uh, grown ch- men may learn from little children because the little hearts of little children are pure. Hmm. If, if you see a child come into a room, uh, an infant, you'll often find adults change their pitch oh look at the baby you know mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something about the purity of that that opens us up right and uh, there's something about the purity of a of a uh, you know sometimes children will stare at people and you'll say oh don't stare don't stare at that per- person who's missing his arm or don't stare at that person who's and yet the child is really sort of trying to zero in in some way and just understand and there's a way in which the the purity and the innocence of that insight actually uh, may have more to do with wisdom than our sort of constructed and elaborated and scientized kind of thing. For example, uh, Hmm. the great religionist Abraham Heschel, he says, um, the beginning of wisdom is wonder and the beginning of wonder is awe. And it's this capacity for, again, beginner's mind, for seeing things freshly that may actually add to this kind of uh, wisdom of, of children, just as my daughter gave me advice at six and a half years old, but I have no no idea where it came from, and yet there it is. So, and and what age does this turn off, so to so to say? 
Yeah, it's it, and parents often will will say, you know, when they've got a six year old and they see the wonder of this, and and they'll say, "Wow, I don't want them to lose their spirituality. I don't want mm-hmm. them to lose their connection. What do we do? You know, do we go to church or synagogue or mosque? Do we do you know? Do we do something else? What do we do? So it looks like the developmental arc, and it, it's been fun to both uh, be with people at different ages over this, but also to see, even in my own children, uh, to have looked at this for 25 years now and to see uh, that developmental arc, what happens. And it's quite natural for some of this to get recessive, that is to go to the background, particularly as the individual self develops. And it's really important for that sense of self to develop. You know, who am I? What am I as an individual? One of the troubles, though, is that we've assumed that the self is this entirely independent thing. And these days, thanks to quantum mechanics and thanks to our understanding of the world as an interdependent organism, or at least parts of that, uh, we begin to say, wow, maybe we're not so independent. Maybe that um, the self is always a self in relation. Mm-hmm. self in relation to other people, to our history, to our family, to the natural world. We're, a, we're, a, we're an animal, you know, this kind of thing. And so maybe the self isn't so stiffly bounded. So it's not unusual for a seven-year-old to begin to lose some of that wide openness, a six-year-old even, to lose some of that wide openness. Five, six, seven is a great age because they can both articulate what's going on and also still be open to it. After mm-hmm. that point, they can still articulate it, but sometimes it, it sort of goes to the background as this more immediate sort of sense of self, uh, self-development comes forward. But the person who's deeply empathic is still going to be empathic. And so uh, the challenge is to have a self, I think, uh, but also have this, these tools to say, huh, let me, let me see if I can stay in touch with my sense of wonder. Let me see if I can stay in touch with... Innocence. Can I find spaces of silence, for example? Uh, this is one of the things that goes first in a seven-year-old in school or a six-year-old, right? Space of silence between excessive screen time, people talking at me, my own cell phone that I'm hoping I'll get in next birthday, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's just, it's like, wow, we're, there's no downtime. And if there's no downtime, if there's no silent time, if there's no time in nature, uh, mm. for example, then there's, uh, there's the, our, our connection with, with wonder really starts to recede. So these are, so anyway, in answer to the question, not unusual to see it sort of abate a little bit around eight, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But also there's some ways that we really can keep our, 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 you know, questions about what do you think we're here for? You know, what is, mm-hmm. how's your life going? This kind of thing. What do you, what do you know? This this is a part of what as a parent or a teacher can keep it alive. Yeah. And I think, you know, just, I have a five-year-old um, and his questions are always so really profound. If you listen the other day we were driving and he was just staring out the window and we passed a cemetery hmm. and he, he just said, mom, I'm not ready to die yet. Hmm. And I thought, well, good. Cause I'm not ready for you to die yet. Yeah. Um, and I said, I know, buddy, I, I don't want that to happen right now either. I just love you too much. And it's just like to, to think about the connections that they make that are so unfiltered and raw and 
beautiful and you know, really what I think we all feel and they just put words to without the filter of a frontal lobe that's saying, oh, I shouldn't say that. And people will think I'm weird if I say something like that. They just kind of put it all out there. And it's just so beautiful to see if you can be present enough to see it. And there's plenty of times where I'm sure I miss it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful description of that, right? And we just, uh, again, it just isn't socially acceptable and, uh, to, to have those deep existential questions. It's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and yet that's exactly what keeps it alive is to know, know you've got other people who are also asking the questions. You're not an alien. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you've got community. Well, and sometimes I'll even play with that with them, you know, obviously given kind of my my coming out of this podcast and talking more about some of these issues, it's become very commonplace in my home to talk about, you know, what happens when we die. My kids joke that I have the library of death, they call it, because everything I'm reading seems to be about death for the podcast. And, and it's become really part of how we talk about things. And and so it's opened up a whole world of conversation. My son is really, my middle son is really interested in the Holocaust. And and so that has been a really profound experience talking about that in contrast with the work I'm doing. And, you know, have people have people who experienced the Holocaust come back and talked about it in another life. And, you know, all of these interesting questions that I hope has allowed for them to have more wonder and curiosity and not cut it off because I feel like it does on some level just get nixed for a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And our own difficulty tolerating talking about some of these existential issues. And again, not not every kid is sort of going there either. That's, you know, one of the interesting things is that there's there's this range, right? So some kids are deeply empathic and some kids are the natural philosophers and some kids have this wisdom and other kids are really into, you know, find wonder through sports or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really the the kind of uniqueness of uh, you know, their their spiritual style, I would even say, that's really fun to kind of to uh, to draw out a little bit and to and to notice as we go, and often that that provides, uh, you know, in some of our research we looked at autobiographical accounts of historic figures, and surprisingly, what's what's been missed is that their most profound spiritual moments, and the the magic that led to the gateway of their entire life as a spiritual being, was in childhood. Mm-hmm. Tilliard de Chardin, the great Jesuit sage, uh, you know, at six or seven, uh, Saint, Saint Catherine of Siena, you know, uh, uh, you know, all these folks had these experiences as children and described them in their autobiographies, but but we didn't pay any attention to them. Hmm. So, so, so often the seed is already planted in some. Well, another very interesting interview. So, thank you. And where can people find your work if they're interested? Uh, the the book The Secret Spiritual World of Children is available and has been around for a little while uh, on Amazon or any any other uh, website. And uh, is there any other website at this point? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, and, and we we have a website called uh, Child Spirit One Word dot uh, org or dot net Child Spirit. And um, although it's been a little uh, neglected, I think there's some uh, links to some other resources there as well. And if they want to find you directly, 
Your website. Uh, the the um, I I can't even remember uh, the. I'll find it. I'll put it in my show yeah, notes for thanks. people. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I think they can find through the Child Spirit website. There's also an, a book for, you know, children who have grown up. It's called The Four Virtues. Mm-hmm. org. There is a website there with some, I think, some useful information and contact information on me as well. So, Okay. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for the research you're doing and for opening up really the world of, of children and spirituality, because I know you were one of the people at the forefront of that. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for your time. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.